Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and always streaming on WOMR.org. Over the past decade, about a million juveniles have been arrested in America. And on a single day, around 30,000 are locked up in secure placement facilities. Few of us have any idea what goes on inside these institutions, no less what goes on inside the minds of young people with deep histories of neglect, trauma, hunger, abuse, and isolation. We do know that they're overwhelmingly people of color, that most come from impoverished families, and that many have been accused of committing violent crimes. But beyond that, as far as much of society is concerned, the less we know and the less we see of them, the better. But what happens to these kids when they leave the system? Is it possible for them to change their lives or to learn how to control their impulses, no less to pay the rent? And who are the teachers and counselors who've devoted their careers to helping them try? My guest today is Jeff Hobbs. He's a best-selling and critically acclaimed author of three previous books. His latest is Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. Jeff Hobbs, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, Thanks so much for having me, Ira. It does mean a lot. So the young people who end up in youth detention, or what's known as juvenile hall, are inordinately people of color and poor and accused of violent crimes. So far, the same could be said for anyone in the prison system. But throughout the book, you keep reminding us that they're children. So why is it so important to treat them differently? Um, Well, because it's kind of what got me. It's a good question to start with because it's sort of the impetus for this whole book and this project and these years spent, um, which um, just began with some visits I was making to juvenile halls to talk about um, writing and and books, um, just as kind of a volunteer, guest, creative writing helper kind of a, a person. Um, and when you go into a juvenile hall and you spend an hour, it, it feels kind of like you would expect a locked facility for kids to feel like. I mean, there's kids are unhappy. There's fights. There's noise. Um, there's arguments. Uh, and it's really sad. But if you hang around for a while and keep going back and get to know the actual individual kids there, um, you start to see the the friendships and the and the the formative relationships with teachers and just the wonder and spirit of being a kid and and um, you know these aspirations in very difficult situations. And um, it's that contrast that um, I, I found to be really moving and, uh, and worth some attention. For some of these kids who get incarcerated, you tell us about a near universal breakage of spirit, a loss of hope and perseverance. Can you talk about what this means for the kids' lives going forward? Yeah. And what I, I sort of I think of it as the psychology of locks because 
Um, if you're looking at it from far away and you think, I mean, a kid makes a bad decision, uh, maybe he or she hurts somebody uh, in a fight or just through um, impulsiveness, um, maybe they break something, maybe they steal something um, and end up in the system, even for a short time, and, and you think, um, well, I mean, things are getting sorted and that it's not that big of a deal. But um, I learned just being there and seeing just the faces on young people that uh, when a door locks behind a child, even if it's just for a couple hours while some paperwork gets done in the courthouse or a guardian needs time to get off work and pick them up, even if it's just for a couple hours, um, that the sound of that lock closing is life altering. And it, it just, uh, um, you, you can see that and, and it makes everything after a lot harder just to go back to school and, uh, um, and continue to be a kid, you know, that's why it's important. You write that getting entangled in the legal system at a young age involves seven points of contact, from drawing attention from the police to getting booked all the way up to being reviewed by a judge. Each contact involves a yes or no decision that can send a kid away from or closer to confinement. What does a kid have to have going for him or her in their lives to tilt the scales toward a good outcome? Um, yeah, this is a really important um, point just overall in if we're sort of looking at the system as a whole because um, juvenile justice, it's a, it's a state-run system um, and even differs by county and municipality. So it's a pretty convoluted system overall, even though it does follow trends. But um, yeah, each system has these decision points between being arrested and being locked up um, six or seven or eight, maybe. Um, and the whole point of it is to like divert kids from being sent to jail. But um, simply put, what I learned is that at any one of those points, um, if you have an adult figure standing behind you, vouching for you, um, with the means to pay fines and maybe hire representation or an advocate, um, or just to say, like, I'm for this child, I will take this child home, and look after this child, um, uh, unless that kid has really hurt somebody, he doesn't go to jail. Um, so the kids who do go through all those steps and get bumped up to the judge and get sent um, and get locked up are the kids who don't have that person behind them. Lawyer, money, caring adult. That can make the difference between kids who go, who get locked up and kids who don't. Uh, yeah, it makes all the difference. <laughs> the book gives us a fascinating chronicle of the way our country has dealt with troubled children from brutal almshouses to forced labor all the way to the present. Can you give us a bit of the history of youth incarceration? Um, yeah, I, I can. And it's a sort of a short chapter in the book, just going back to 
the 1700s when if a if a kid was acting up too much the the community could actually just take him from the family um and maybe toward indentured servitude or um something and uh and so i mean there, there's all these uh movements and different tactics that happened over time there was a, a time when they would take sort of impoverished truant children and just put them on trains and send them into the open west to to be adopted and work on farms um but uh to reduce it if if you go back through the whole history um, what you see is just a pendulum swinging back and forth between severe punitive punishment for um, kids being unsupervised maybe mental health problems um, swinging toward humane rehabilitative um, treatment with maybe some schooling involved and back and forth um, just a couple times every generation, basically. Um, and uh, I thought that was interesting that the system is sort of constantly changing and yet also never changing, if that makes sense. Um, and I think right now we're on the swing um, for about the last 15 or 20 years toward the humane and restorative justice. And uh, I would say in a positive direction um, but there are a lot of forces that continue to push that pendulum back where does the term reform school come from um oh that was a sort of pre child saving movement it was sort of the, the first time because originally kids were locked up in these basically these giant boxes and um, windowless rooms and just kept there um and then a movement in the 1800s led mostly by sort of upper class women um, wanted to sort of introduce like a cottage living style and some academic instruction mostly evangelical um and uh um and make it make it resemble in some remote way a school so um, that's the reform school. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the punishment, incarceration, and possible redemption of America's most vulnerable kids. My guest is Jeff Hobbs, the author of Children of the State, Stories of Survival and Hope in the Juvenile Justice System. Jeff, you go deeply into the story of a young man named Josiah, who ends up confined to a secure facility that has a very serious educational program. Josiah is smart. He has counselors who help him. He manages to graduate high school and even gets a scholarship to a community college away from home. But in the end, he just can't adapt. Can you can you talk about why? What goes on for kids like him that make that make it hard to make the leap into what into into society? Um, yeah, I would love to talk about Josiah, who's a, a person I admire a lot. Uh, I was about to say kid, but he, he's not really a kid anymore because it's been a few years since I met him. Um, and I met him, um, he ended up spending two years in detention because um, he spent a year and he got out and 
made another bad decision and uh, went back into a higher security situation for another year, which was his, would have been his senior year in high school. Um, and I met him right in the middle of that. And uh, he, he was pretty guarded, uh, pretty, uh, pretty down, I would say, as a euphemism. Um, but also bright, and uh, you you would catch him kind of smiling and laughing once in a while. It was almost like anytime he felt happiness, he didn't want you to see it. Like he was embarrassed by um, any um, any levity. But uh, we sort of over time spent connected and and uh, and just talked a lot. And um, and he was one of those kids who kind of bought into the program and paid attention in class to a certain extent. And I think a lot of people don't fully grasp that a juvenile hall is a school. And kids are all day going to English class and math class and <clears throat> um, learning long division and, and financial literacy and things. And um, uh, again, Josiah wasn't, it wasn't like he was a superstar or anything, but he paid attention and he got his credits and he graduated high school while he was still um, locked up. And even um, through kind of a huge support network that built up around him, um, even had an opportunity to go to community college um, not long after he was released. Um, so it, at that time, this was in a, this was during the pandemic actually. So it, it was like the, winter of 2020 and um um he uh you know so at that point like uh it was resembling that story we all love to read about just the the kid who sort of gets to work and makes good on the opportunities and um does it sort of the old-fashioned american way but uh um as I mentioned earlier, that psychology of locks, it it does trail these kids and it trailed Josiah to college where uh, he, he was pretty far from home and just out of his element and uh, um, didn't know anybody. And it was cold and dark um, winter time and, um, and he just, as he did in juvenile hall, he just was spending a lot of time sort of sitting by himself and staring at the wall. Um, and at the end of the day, it wasn't anything earth shattering. He just got homesick and felt, felt in over his head and came home. Um, but uh, through, through the same support network, he, he got a job and um, he's been doing all right. You spent some time at a juvenile justice center called Woodside in San Francisco. And although the facility had all the discipline of a prison, it also tried to make real impacts on the lives of the inmate students. I'd like you to talk a bit about Woodside, its teachers, and why the city of San Francisco decided to shut it down. Um, yeah, this, this is a long story, but I, I love talking about Woodside, because uh, again, it's a place that holds all of these contradictions I was talking about earlier. It has kind of all the prison-like 
awfulness of the juvenile justice system and also all of the empathy and the and the caring adults and and educational creativity that uh, that <clears throat> we don't tend to think about when we think about juvenile hall but uh, a woodside in a nutshell is a court school in the middle of san francisco um, and it's where kids go uh, after they've been arrested but before their cases have gone in front of a judge um, but these are kids who are deemed um, not safe to be let out on probation or anything so so they're held in this jail very jail like facility um, for some indeterminate amount of time and that's where the stress comes in you have all these kids on any given day like 30 or 40 kids who just don't know what is going on because they haven't seen a judge yet so um, they don't know if they're going to be there for a few days or weeks um, for complicated cases they can be there for months or even years and some kids are just passing through for an afternoon so um, if you can imagine kids between age 14 and 19 um, all in these small classrooms in all of these different states of entropy and confusion and crisis uh, um, all ostensibly trying to go to school um, you can sort of start to imagine the kind of energy in, in those classrooms and this section actually focuses on the teachers who who lead those classrooms um, especially uh, English language teacher named Megan who Megan Mercurio who um, if you picture a juvenile hall teacher you probably picture someone with uh, something like a hard exterior someone who's who's kind of seen a lot and um, maybe has built a kind of wall around his or herself to to uh, just keep all the pain away but uh, Megan is the opposite of that. She lets it all in. Um, very empathetic. Uh, carries all of these stories with her. Um, you tell a story about her in which she has a desk that is piled high with plush animal toys in her classroom for kids to hold on to during class. And, and almost everyone, boys as well as girls, actually takes a stuffed animal to sit with. That, that really surprised me because the kids you're describing are like, are in there for murder and, and like mugging an, an elderly person for her pocketbook. Talk about that a little bit. What does this say about these kids? Uh -huh. Yeah, and, and one kid uh, opened fire in a public shopping mall. Yeah, the kids in Woodside are um, did pretty serious stuff where they're truly not safe outside and the people around them maybe aren't safe. But uh, um, yeah, but every day in English class, they would go to her desk and each kid would sort of claim a, a stuffed animal and just have it in front of him or or her um and again it, it gets back to these very powerful contrasts when you when you uh when young kids are 
being put in very adult situations. Um, actually, the first day I met Megan Mercurio, she was, I didn't really know her at all. I was just this awkward guy who um, showed up um, and she was walking me to the courthouse next door to um, get some credentials so I could spend the day inside. And she seemed sad and I asked her if um, how she was doing. Um, and she said, I'm not good because she told me about a student she'd had who'd been in and out of juvenile hall who was troubled but smart and she really liked him and he got out and was doing really well. And the day before he'd been just murdered um, in his car in San Francisco. Uh, and so while she was grieving for this student she'd been really fond of, she also said that there was a likelihood that the murderer would end up in her classroom sometime in the next week or two, and she'd be teaching that boy English and writing poetry with him. And uh, so try to imagine just a person carrying all this. Hmm. And then um, as I hung around and that year progressed, the murderer did end up in her classroom. And uh, his name was Lawrence, and she ended up forming a, a pretty special relationship with him too and he he had his own story that she carried if you're just joining us you're listening to the lowdown with ira wood and WOMR. today we're talking about the lives of incarcerated kids my guest is jeff hobbs the author of children of the state stories of survival and hope in the juvenile justice system one of the more extraordinary scenes that you paint in the book was your description of a zen teacher named kodo trying to teach meditation to a class of these very hard kids. In fact, the same kids we're talking about, the kid who, who, who mugged an old woman for her handbag and Lawrence, who was in there for murder. How did the Zen Buddhist class go? Oh, I'm so, uh, so glad that that chapter maybe stood out to you in some way. Because um, to me, it really, uh, I mean, it was just a normal day, like many hundreds I spent in these facilities but uh um, there was something about it that made it central to the whole story i was telling and and i put it actually central um in the exact center of the book but um um basically it was megan's class and um and the group that happened to be in there in her class that week in the highest security um unit of san francisco so um, you know, kids that were in there for pretty bad cases um, just asked her. They knew she sort of did some meditation and they were asking about that and if they could try it. Um, and she said, you know, that meditation is pretty hard and uh, it's not always pleasant. Um, but they begged and she uh, brought in a friend of hers who was actually a Zen Buddhist monk, like the kind of person who does silent retreats for a year <laughs> uh, and so over a couple days you had this guy in front of all these students um, talking them through the process of deep meditation but no one thought they would actually like be able to actually meditate and be still and quiet for five minutes let alone an hour um, and then they went and they did it and then uh, just full still silence for a full class 
and then they sort of came out of this trance and started talking about what they had seen sort of inside their um, inside their minds and inside their souls and uh, um, it, it was a uh, kind of beautiful and funny and also really scary and powerful with all this trauma and uh, um, so I, I, I was hoping that chapter would stand up to what, somebody. So what really I... stood out to me was the fact that the thing that Zen tries to teach is to take a separation from your emotions. And these kids are the exact opposite. One of their problems is that if they feel an emotion, they feel anger. If they feel that they're being dissed, they act on it immediately. And that's the exact thing that gets them in trouble. And that's that's what that chapter did to me. It was like, oh my God, she made an inroad into one of their biggest problems. Um, yeah, you, you're exactly right. And I think that was, that was the power of being there. And then, um, and then it, it maybe sounds a little kumbaya, but it, it's hard not to extend that and just think it's what all of these kids are capable of if if you give them some space and maybe maybe put a zen monk in front of them um, they're capable of of a lot of self-reflection well that's the thing that i got out of your book is that is that these kids are capable of so much more than anybody thinks they're capable of they are they're not only the crimes that they've committed. Um, we don't have very much time, but I do want you to talk about a program called Exalt, which actually tries to deal with kids in a very positive way. And, it, and, it, and Exalt actually pays them to go to school. Give, it, give us about a minute on what Exalt is. Oh, sure. And then Exalt um, is kind of a, a much more hopeful um um, program, uh, which is why I sort of conclude the book um, telling a story um, within this program, um, which is still a hard story, but uh, um, exalt. So I mentioned there's these steps in between arrest and adjudication, which is a kind of a more pleasant way of saying sentencing. Um, whereby each step like a kid can be diverted from from the system. And um, so Exalt is basically a diversion program for kids who've, uh, most of them have already served time in juvenile hall. And um, it's kind of like a reentry program that teaches life skills and, and how, to, how to do a professional job interview and write a professional email and, and sort of keep track of money, um, things like that. But uh, it, it Greater than that, it's really a class where um, kids go every day after school. It's very intense, um, and they're forced to kind of support each other and lean on each other and hold each other accountable. And um, and that's what the focus of this chapter on is on um, a boy named Ian who had um, done a pretty bad thing and uh, had paid. A pretty high price for it, and w was just trying to to figure himself out and get back in. Um, and one, um, just it, it's not 
necessarily related to anything, but it also shows the the fact that these are still children. Um, you know, they're going through these crises um, and trying to redeem themselves. But at the same time, Ian kind of developed a crush on a girl in his class that, uh, um, and he's a pretty tough guy, but this girl kind of had him tied up in knots. And at some point he asked me, um, like, for advice on how to uh, maybe get her attention a little. And I mean, I told him I'd been married for 17 years, so I probably wasn't <laughs> the best person to ask. But I said that um, maybe a nice handwritten letter uh, is kind of an out of the box way. And he like scoffed at me. He said, yeah, you're definitely not the right person to ask. <laughs> I think we're going to uh, have to end it there. Um, it's all to say that they're, they're kids and yeah. Um, we should care about them like kids. My guest today has been author Jeff Hobbs. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Children of the State was recently published by Scribner. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on how America deals with vulnerable kids who've made terrible mistakes, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Bye for now.